Hey everybody, Happy New Year, and welcome to the third episode of Digging Deeper. Let's go. Very honored to have uh, my uncle Andre uh, Yankowski to be a guest here today on the podcast. And uh, Andre is uh, uncle uh, married to my aunt Cecilia, originally from Poland. And in fact, my grandmother used to have a Chinese name for him named Bolanlo. <laughs> Great to know. <laughs> that, you yes. remember that? Yes, I'm used and, to. And uh, that, that was his, his nickname. But uh, Andre is a very, very nice and wise gentleman. And uh, I'm very honored for him to share some of his uh, experiences, uh, particularly growing up in Poland and, and some uh, of his knowledge um, through the years. So thank you very much, Andre, for being well, here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So what we're going to do first off is talk about uh, your upbringing and, and birth mm-hmm. in, in Poland and some of your family uh, memories growing up. So I was born in, in uh Western part of Poland. I was born in, in 1957. That was at the height of the, well, maybe not at the height, but right just after the Stalinist era in Poland. My parents were of, say, lower middle class uh, uh, origin. My mother used to sell newspapers and, and uh, cigarettes in a a little stall in front of a large factory. My ma- my father was an Air Force uh, officer. They both have gone, they spent their youth during the war, of course. They've missed the time when they could get a good education. Our family, well, not poor, but definitely, definitely not rich. Did you feel uh, the struggle or to you it was just a normal no, life? Not really. I did not feel in my youth or even after much of a struggle or, or a lack of material goods or so. Because at that time in Poland, everybody was sort of in this position unless you were a Communist Party member and, and uh, you had all these privileges. But otherwise, all our neighbors were in the same uh, position. We did not have much stuff, but everybody around you was in the same position. Therefore, you did not feel to be underprivileged. And when you were growing up, um, because your parents went through the war, did they share some of their experiences with you as a child and uh, some teachings through through what they experienced? War was, World War, World War II was l- all the time with us. It wasn't really just through my parents. That was such a traumatic experience in the life of the nation that you've had it on TV, you've had it at school, you've had it in your family. So they they did not really share a very details uh, about their lives during the war with us. However, I've learned very many details much later. Well, after my father died, I got uh, through my sister his memoirs. He actually wrote down many things about his experience during the war and uh, pass it on to us. 
I've learned it quite recently. And I was always wonder that you know when a country goes through a war and go through the recovery phase, is this something that they want to reflect on or, or the op- opposite, which is completely ignore and try to move past it without looking back. Um, the Polish nation had a very traumatic history. We have gone through wars, one war after the other. The nation is actually a thousand years old it's, uh, as a state. In uh, 966, uh, one of Polish kings uh, decided that now it's going to be a Christian nation. And uh, Pope in Rome recognized Poland at that time as uh, one part of the Holy Roman Empire. And from there on, the Polish statehood. Uh, records and the country was powerful and large through middle ages until somewhere in 17th century and at that time it started declining it started declining quite rapidly such that by the end of 18th century it disappeared from the map it's been taken apart by its neighbors by germany by russia and in the south by austro-hungarian empire so the country did not exist for 150, almost 150 years. It was reinstated in 1919 after World War I. After World War I, and the freedom lasted for 20 years. Then comes September 1st, 1939, and the World War II breaks out. By I, I remember that date because I remember in grade six, yeah. I had to give a, a public speaking topic. Uh, in front of my class, and I talked about World War II, and I remember that date, September 1st, 1939, the yeah. beginning of World War II, essentially. Uh, it yeah. was the beginning of World War II, and uh, at that time, we got hit from both sides. 17 days after Hitler entered Poland, the Soviets entered from the other That's side right. and, taken the con- and, 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 and taken the country apart, practically. And I remember the name uh, Hans Frank, Hans Frank, Frank was it? There was Hans Frank. He was basically, in, I guess, the Nazi representative. In, he in was Poland. the. He during the occupation, uh, the Germans designed a special area in in Poland called Ge- General Government, and I, I I can't translate it. And Hans Frank was the the governor for mm-hmm. that area right. where the Poles uh, where the Poles lived. And from what I read, he was quite a, a brutal well, uh, human being. Uh, or I guess it was all uh, translation br- through the whole regime, I guess. I, I think that the brutality, it, it is somehow somewhat difficult for people from the West to comprehend the brutality of World War II in the East. The numbers are staggering. For yeah. example... Uh, Civilian casualties in Poland were in order of 20%. That means that one in five civilians would perish, perish during this war. When you compare to what was happening in the West, the civilian casualties were in the range of 1%, 1 in 100. Right. Even at the peak of bombing of London by German, the, the civilian casualty would be around Two percent, one in fifty, and the civilian casualties also including the Jewish uh, and the concentration oh, camps and the basically that, that, ethnic that, cleansing. The, yeah. the, the ethnic uh, the ethnic cleansing. That that that's right. Poland uh, had a 
a very large Jewish population yeah. before the war. These Jewish populations had very deep roots. Uh, the Jews were invited uh, in uh, 1600s to, by one of Polish kings to settle in, in this country. And in the East, they were actually Jewish town where the Yiddish language was the language. There was, there was very many of them. And the Germans, the Nazis, in their policy, when they came occupied, to occupy Poland and Ukraine and what is today's Belarusia, they classified Jews as a subhumans and uh, mm -hmm. therefore the population that was due for extermination. Yeah. Poles were different. Poles were also some form of a subhumans, but in the, in the Nazis' plans, Poles were supposed to be Slavs, not just Poles. The Russians, the, the Ukrainians were to be the slaves for the Aryan nations. Yeah, that's what I, re I remember reading. So... Uh, they wanted it to be a slave nation. They, they were to um, the, So as the Jews were perishing in the death camps, such like uh, Treblinka or, or Sobibor, the Poles would be lingering and perishing at a slower rate in the labor camps. And they would call them ghettos at the time? Ghettos or? were the areas in uh, large cities where the Jewish population were round up. And the ghettos uh, lasted usually until 43 or early 44, early 1944, at which time the Germans decided to liquidate the, the ghettos, hence the requirements for the final solution. But they were using these ghettos to manufacture Yes, equipment for war, among other things. Not I really think. ghettos. Uh, the manufacturing was done in uh, industrial factories where the labor, where the slave labor would be used. And these were primarily non-Jewish people. Also, Jews were also used as a labor. But Jews, while ones went around up, would perish quickly, say, Camps like Treblinka, it was a death factory. This was 900,000 Jews disappeared there in space of roughly a year. And uh, I guess there was no barracks there or, or for people who were arriving to the camp. Pretty well within 24 hours from the arrival of the train, people would have been cremated. There was no slave labor as such, except for a group of people called Sonderkommando. The Sonderkommandos were those who were operating the gas chambers and the crematorias. And we all, I mean, I think we're all familiar with Auschwitz, but I mean, the number of concentration yes. camps in Poland is probably staggering. I Auschwitz say. was actually a dual purpose camp. It was a death camp for the Jews, and it was a labor camp. The labor was primary at the pharmaceutical factory in close to, close to uh, Auschwitz, uh, that German company turned after war into buyer industry. If you know aspirin buyers. In, yeah, yeah, the beer, yeah, That's the company where the Auschwitz labor was. This is the company. Really? Was, I yes. Didn't, I didn't know that. It's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, so in any case, Auschwitz was the most known, the largest camps, but uh, 
and it was a death camp. A million Jews lost their lives yeah. uh, there. However, the from Na Auschwitz was all functioning as a concentration camps from 1941. And at that time, it was housing mainly Russian prisoners of war and Poles. Mm. The Jews started arriving there in mass when the second part of Auschwitz been constructed. It used to be called oh, Birkenau. I see. Birkenau was the death camp. And I guess through overcrowding, they needed to construct yeah. more uh, space, uh, I guess. That's right. So. Well, in any case, uh, the, to return to your original question, it's uh, the civilian casualty yeah. were uh, at the scale that are hard to imagine in the West. Therefore, the consequences for the nation, for the psyche of the nation, yeah. are, I think, are going to stay with with us with the poles and yeah. i believe with the ukrainians or with the belarusians yeah. for many generations to come yeah i was surprised in 2011 we went for a vacation or 2012 vacation to new york yes and uh, in new york we went to a very large bookstore uh, Three stories books are fantastic and my son was with me yeah Theo. Theo yeah so we roam around this bookstore by ourselves and here comes Theo I found myself a book and uh, look what it is it's a two inch thick brick about history of World War II mm -hmm. I was wondering how did he get this idea in his age yeah to find a book for himself for yeah. interest yeah. about World War II yeah I'd never lived through World War II. How come I am watching all the programs? I know all about, no, no, don't know all about it, but yeah. how come I find this, this deep interest? And there must be something that bears on us. Yeah. That, that, that Absolutely. I think it's still fresh in a lot of people's minds, especially in you know your generation, baby boomers, yeah. and in your parents' generation. And then I think through media, yes. movies, with film and then that's why it's such a, a prevalent topic and I, I think war intrigues people too it's, right a war is always a turning point in any civilization or culture um, and I think that's part of what World War II is right? our nation Poles we faced wars one after the other insurrections yeah. one after the other as I told you and the country did not exist for 150 years yeah. every 20 years or so another insurrection came yeah. Yeah. So there is a very strong feeling of nationalism, very strong Catholic beliefs because right. the Catholic Church was carrying the nationalistic flag at that time. However, World War II and the brutalities of World War II stand apart. It's sort of like a national PTSD. It's oh, absolutely. It 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 is going to. It affected all all arts, literature, history, it's, it's yeah. gonna carry on the thought of it for a long time with, with people. And I want to go back to um, your parents and how mm -hmm. you found your father's memoir. And I, I was curious as to what their experience was through World War II and, and what they it's, kind it's, of went through. It, it, it's, it's, it's actually quite amazing. I know quite a bit about my father, a bit less about my mother, but 
when the war broke out, my father was, what, 13, 14 years old. There was 11 of them in the family, it's 11 siblings. My father was the youngest one. And in his memoirs, he describes the time when uh, they mother, the mother was very the do dominant part of the, my father's family, decided that, yes, we have to evacuate from my city, city of Poznań, before the Germans enter. And who needs to evacuate was the mother, the youngest son, that is my father, and one of his brothers with his wife and a three-month-old baby. The mother wanted to save the youngest son, my father, and the, and the, and the three-month-old grandchild. So my father describes that they go on this road. My f mother rides a cart uh, drawn by a horse. My father on a bicycle rides behind it. And the uh, brother was a baby next to him. And as they walk day by day in a crowd of other people escaping, going towards east, a, a, a bombardment started and, and, and shooting. So they jump off this road into the ditch, into the fields, looking for cover. It lasted apparently two, two hours. After that, my father gets up, goes to runs to the road, and there is no more cart, there is no more horse, there's no more his mother. This is the last time he ever seen his mother. And uh, despite long, long search, they have never learned what happened to her. Nobody ever heard. It's, it's, it's quite dramatic. That is very dramatic. Did he, uh, he was 13 years old, basically orphaned. Basically or orphaned. Basically with orphaned. His, with, 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 yes. Did he spend a lot of his adolescent life looking for his mother or did he it's, just accept the, I, the I, fate of it i do not uh, he doesn't write about this very much uh, about the trauma of losing this mother this way i think there was so much trauma all around it that you could not self-pity yourself too much you'd be hit every time on the same evacuation trip he describes Another event, he says that as they were going towards Vistula River, that's the river that sort of centers Poland and divides the east from west, he witnessed a charge of Polish cavalry against Germans who were trying to cross the Vistula. And the way he describes it is, is quite romantic. He says that he lay there on his belly watching those cavalrymen charging the Germans under heavy bombardment and machine gun fire. And none, none of the cavalry horsemen ever turned back or, uh, or, or slew down. And that the cavalry managed to cut off the Germans from the river. And uh, then he says, I never forget that until the end of my life. And he wrote the thing when he was probably 70 or so. So indeed, wow. he's never forgot that in, in, in his uh, life. Yes. When I look back at this, his youth, when he was 13, 14, oh, yeah. was, was quite incredible. And that was a youth of all, all those young yeah. people. Therefore, you can't really expect them to be like the western youth 
Oh, no, especially in today's generation. But uh, I'm curious as to, you know, because they went through the war, they went through these very difficult times at a very young age. Um, How did that influence the way you were raised? Uh, If you recall, were they um, strict? Were they um, more lenient? My my parents were quite, they were very, they were good parents. They were attentive, but they did let us us, it means me and my sister, do things the way we want. Yeah. They weren't intrusive. Uh, I yeah. don't think it has anything to do with the war or not war. Right. The fact <laughs> of the war, actually there were three major influences, I think, of my upbringing and my generation upbringing in, in the country. Was first, it would be Catholicism. We were mm-hmm. very strong Catholics. Okay. Second, it would be strong nationalism. It is because the nation was all the time at war and all the time struggling for survival. And the third, obviously, was communism and all this propaganda that we were were exposed to at school. And then, of course, uh, parents, the parents teaching. Yeah. So... But I think because they went through such tough times, they probably obviously developed some mental toughness, I'm sure. And I guess I think that kind of translates to the kids, too, because I think you don't want your kids to feel like if they encounter any obstacles or difficulties that they kind of whimper up and back down. I think you just keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And, and I think that toughness, maybe it's not the, the right, uh, right word. What they, I think, because being depraved of many things during the war, because of being depraved of many things after the war, well, the communist time, they have developed a, a very, a, a very skillfully ability to live within their means, yes. not to desire yes. much, yes. but be able to find happiness it in a daily, uh, daily routines. As a matter of fact, this is probably something that have affected my outlook the most we've and and they it's not through their teaching it's rather through me observing yes how they lived and that's actually what i wanted to get to because one of the things i admire in you and auntie cecilia is both of you have a very positive outlook towards life and i can see correct me if i'm wrong that it doesn't take too much for you guys to be happy and content I feel that energy every time I talk to you, and I think you um, have t- taught that, or at least you know, uh, translated that to your kids. And I think your kids are very similar in that way. And I think that sort of comes through my parents. I, I, I yeah, that's I what think I'm trying you to get right. to. You, you, yeah. you are right, but I think that it has a lot to do what it is that you, what you think a good life is about. And from my parents, at least from observing my parents, I, I at least got this, this belief that a good life is about finding meaning. There is no way, it's useless exercise to strive for pleasure and happiness. Yes. Pleasure and happiness is a result. You will... Pleasure and happiness will find you yes. if your life have meaning. Yes. For meaning, you do not need much. 
Yes. Good work can give you meaning. Yes. Work which you don't do necessarily for money, but you do for the sake of excellence, which is the work you love. You happiness know. just happiness is a byproduct of of good of good life. Mm -hmm. It comes to you. Yeah. If you do it. No, but it's, it's it's how you look at it too, because I think the way mm -hmm. you look at life uh, is a very positive it's, way. You know, it doesn't take much for you in that way to be happy, no. right? It, Would you it, agree? It it doesn't, <laughs> and uh, it can come from a very many places uh, at you. Yeah, yeah. Love is, for example, what can be more meaning less, you know, more meaningful than than love? Yeah, yeah. You time stands <clears throat> still. Yeah, yeah. How about arts and beauty? Some yeah. of us, yeah. not all, have the ability to uh, appreciate beauty, or even better create art. Mm -hmm. Think of artists <coughs> often living in a dire material circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Yet they would never choose other life. Yes. I'm learning so much about you. I, I, all this time I just thought the white caps made you happy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that can be a passion as well. Uh -huh. There's actually more with the podcast uh, with Andre, but I think I'm going to save it for publishing at a later time. I'd like to thank Andre for sharing his upbringing and stories of living in Poland and some of his perspectives on life and happiness. Thank you once again for listening. So